Welcome to the Agile Empath Podcast. Whether you're leading, managing, coaching a team, there is a human behavior aspect. We have 20 plus years in the mental health industry and have creative ways to approach situations. We're gonna begin with innovative ideas, how to tap into creativity, utilizing empathy. So these are soft skills to tap into our own potential and help others tap into that potential so we can be efficient with agile methodologies. Please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Welcome to the Agile Empath Podcast, Season 2, Diversity and Inclusion. This is our final episode of the season, Episode 5, Ending Mental Health Stigma with Carl Shallowhorn. Stay tuned. Carl Shallowhorn is the president of Shallowhorn Consulting, LLC. He has a master's degree in student personnel administration from Sunny Buffalo State and is a New York State credentialed alcoholism and substance abuse counselor. Carl has worked in the field of addiction and mental health for over 19 years and has delivered well over 200 trainings, workshops, and keynote addresses to diverse audiences across the U.S. He's a certified mental health first aid instructor and the author of Working on Wellness, A Practical Guide to Mental Health. Carl is the chairperson of the Erie County Anti-Stigma Coalition, as well as serving on several other local and statewide boards. He's received numerous awards for his advocacy efforts, including from the National Federation for Just Communities and the Buffalo Association of Black Social Workers. Um, he also has a new book out, Leadership Through the Lens of the 12 Steps. We are including the Amazon link directly to this book. He's the host of Color Me Healthy, a Facebook Live program that focuses on topics centered on wellness for the African-American community. We welcome Carl. Carl, welcome to the Agile Empath Podcast. Thank you so much for being our guest. Oh, thank you, Alexia. And I was hoping that you could begin with your why um, and tell us your story, because we all have a reason for doing what we do. It's interesting. My, my story started when I was a college freshman at General Motors Institute, which was a school located in Flint, Michigan. Uh, I was 18, away from home for the first time, uh, only child, adopted only child, and, and I was there with a lot of stress. I was using drugs and alcohol. I was, I was basically just dealing with the rigors of, of a very difficult engineering curriculum, which I'm not an engineer. I probably didn't belong in the first place, but I, I ended up eventually having a major psychotic episode in my second semester, and, and it was, in fact, involved a suicide attempt, so I came home to Buffalo and where I live now and basically had a very slow, uh, you know, recuperation from that experience. But then I cycled for basically the next seven years in and out of hospitals, which were interspersed by drug and alcohol use and, and just, you know, non-adherence uh, to my, my treatment plan and, and poor adherence to medication use. 
until finally I was in a very uh, difficult situation where I'd been experiencing these things for so long that it, it just became a, a cycle like many people have. And I had a very fateful conversation with my, my therapist one day, his name was Dick Hepburn. And Dick basically said to me, Carol, let me give you three choices. Either you go to rehab, you go to a 12 step meeting or you end up back in the hospital. And I'd actually already managed to graduate from, from Buffalo State College with a degree in broadcasting. So that in itself, I think was, was pretty, pretty cool. And then we just, how I did it, I sometimes don't even know, but I realized I had a lot at stake. And it's almost like one of those moments where you have that epiphany. And I realized I don't want to go back to the hospital then how difficult that was. And I definitely don't want to go to rehab. I don't want to tell my boss I had a drug problem because I got a job. I had a job. So I ended up going to the 12-step meeting a couple days later, and that literally changed my life. Basically, I mean, I walked in under the influence, literally under the influence of a drug, but I was able to hear the message of recovery when I was there. I saw a woman stand up and get 30 days clean. And I was like, oh my God, how do you do that? I can't even string together two days. But that I walked in hopeless and I walked out with hope. I always say that to folks. So, so I walked out of there. I ended up getting heavily involved with the program. I, I eventually... Uh, a couple years later, enrolled in school to become a counselor, which I did. And I became a counselor at a local hospital, uh, Buffalo General Hospital, when they had an alcoholism clinic. And then that's where my career began in behavioral health. I worked there for six years. But in 1995, having worked there for a few years, I had another manic episode because I live with bipolar disorder. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder type 1. And when I had that bipolar episode, I was married. My wife was pregnant. And, and I really had so much to lose. So I took three months off of work, you know, through family medical leave and, and ended up just basically taking that time to, to kind of come together. Because you know, as we know, or as many people know, after that major bipolar manic episode, you have a severe depression. And that's what I was going through. So in that midst of the depression, I realized that I had to kind of pull myself together. And I had a lot of help. I had a lot of family support. I had, I had support of friends, you know, through my program that I was active in. And I went back to work, but then I realized, okay, I don't want to do this thing anymore. So I decided to change fields. And I went back to school. I got my master's degree from, once again, from Buffalo State College in student personal administration. And then I just went into higher education for 12 years, which really was totally unrelated to any of the work I'd done, you know, previously in, in behavioral health. But later in about 2007 and actually 2008, I realized I got this calling almost like it was almost like, you know, this is what I was meant to do. And, and I got this calling to kind of go back into the behavioral health world, but it was spurred by Britney Spears being in the news. And I thought about that time and I'm sure you remember when she was in the news back then for her behaviors. And I thought, why don't we hear more positive stories of people in the media living with mental health challenges? And so I wrote an article that ended up in the Buffalo News, the, the, uh, the op-ed uh, op section. And, and basically, not only did I talk about her, uh, but I outed myself as having bipolar disorder. Now, I, that was a huge risk because I was working at a small private college. No one knew. Wow. And, and so you talk about stigma, you talk about risk, you talk about putting your job in line. That's really what I did. And, and in fact, it got to the place where of course, word spread like wildfire, obviously, about me. And, and eventually, I had a conversation uh, with my VP uh, about where I was going, where I was headed. But before that, I began to connect with some local uh, you know, programs and agencies like the National Alliance of Mental Illness, the Western Children's Psychiatric Center. So I kind of began to do my self-advocacy work myself and just wanted to get the word out, just wanted to share my story. 
so I had this conversation with the uh, VP and she said, Carl, if this isn't what your passion is, meaning higher education, you need to find out what it is. And I actually was doing a, uh, a group one hour a week uh, at Horizon Health Services, which were where I originally received counseling at many years before, uh, uh, on work on wellness, which happened to be the name of the book that I eventually wrote. And it is a one hour group and a program uh, for people with severe mental illness. And I end up, um, uh, calling them saying, do you have any full-time openings? Because I realized I got to get out of the higher ed. This is not for me. And they, they made a position for me. They created a position. And, and so I went there. I was a senior addiction specialist in this program. And then that really where that's really was truly the turning point in, in my, really in my career in terms of just going towards the field of mental health. Even though I specialize in addiction, I realized mental health is really where I wanted to be. And so a few years later, I transitioned to the Mental Health Advocates of West New York and Compere Buffalo. It was a shared position where I got, I got into more education and training around mental health. I got into doing uh, some more advocacy work through the agencies. And, and I even for, um, was a project director for a federal grant for mental health first aid. And so I began to develop some of these skills and, and, and things that I use now in terms of leadership and then ability to manage stress, which is a huge one. For me, being a person with this, this severe mental illness and co-occurring disorder of addiction, uh, to be able to just deal with these things on a daily basis. So I learned a lot about myself in the process of how to not only work, but work at a pretty high level and, and still, as we say, keep myself together. And, but I did, it took, a lot of, it took a lot of time to develop those tools and, and practices which have kept me going. And so... From there, I just kept the ball rolling. I ended up uh, at the Community Health Center Buffalo most recently, and then I just developed uh, that work into becoming a consultant, which is where I'm at now today. And I do many of the same things, but I do them uh, for other folks. And, and I've really, it's just been a journey the, the last, well, since 1981. It's been a long journey, but uh, I wouldn't change it. I, well, I'll put it this way. I wouldn't change it, but I wouldn't go through it again. Right. So okay, now we're in this pandemic. We're about seven months in, uh, and people are stressed. People are experiencing lack of motivation, depression, anxiety, and it really is related to grief because we all of a sudden had change and loss. And I don't know if we understand how normal that is with what we're experiencing. Um, and are we okay is the question. And whether we had a pre-existing mental health condition or one that is arising now, what advice would you have um, for people and even people in leadership or HR directors who have employees who um, maybe their work is regressing? Uh, and it may not even be a mental health issue. It may just be someone in the home has COVID or someone's been furloughed. Just all of these unexpected factors, all of a sudden they're hitting us at once. I would, so the first thing I would say is we need to normalize the conversation, right? We, we have to start talking about this and, and not to say that it's the elephant in the room in many cases, but certainly we know that people are dealing with these things, and they, but they keep them inside. They don't talk about it because they're afraid of what's going to happen. I think I heard something just last night. It's not related so much to mental health, but I heard uh, that, that there are many parents feel that they can't go in and talk to their employers about childcare 
for, for their kids so they have to make arrangements because they're afraid of losing their jobs. So many people are afraid of losing employment for fear of, of just, just saying anything. So to say that you have, you're struggling with a mental health concern is huge. Like I mentioned earlier, when I, when I spoke out many years ago, that was a huge risk. Now, mind you, I had a safety net. I fortunately had a credential that I could fall back on and, and I had things, an, you know, an escape plan. Of course, and it certainly wasn't like the conditions are today economically where I was able to change jobs easily. This, this, you know, this, this, what happened years ago couldn't have happened today, I don't think for me. Uh, but, but for folks that are, need to know what to do and those HR people and leadership folks, first of all, empathy is a big one right there. Right. I always talk about empathy, being able to kind of put yourself in the other person's shoes and realize that what they're dealing with is, is real for them. You may not know what it's like, but it's real for them. It's affecting their lives. It's affecting their work performance. And, and so that's one way to address it. Also, to have maybe some, some policies around just um, giving some freedoms. I know for some folks that are able to work remotely, but many people can't. So we have to be able to give people a little breathing room so that they can take care of themselves. I'm a huge proponent of self-care. I believe that if a person isn't able to, to uh, take care of themselves and be well, even physically, they're going to suffer mentally, emotionally. So we have to be able to be sensitive to these things. Another thing that we need to do is just to make sure that, that people are able to go to someone like the supervisor or their HR uh, folks at where they work and just say, this is what's going on. And, and have a, um, a response that isn't, isn't punitive, certainly, uh, which I guess in many ways isn't even legal, but we know that it might happen anyway, uh, yes. honestly, we know that. Right. Uh, but, but then again, we need to, the folks to be, like I said, sensitive and understand that you know, we're all going through this. And like you talked about grief and loss, I mean, that is something that is, we're all experiencing. You know, none of us is living the way that we did before. And so everyone is under this, this collective sense of anxiety and stress that, that seems to be insurmountable. So we need to recognize that too. So I guess in the end, I'm saying is a lot of this comes down to just plain old sensitivity and empathy uh, for the individual. Okay, and then my next question, uh, so in May with the killing of George Floyd and increased awareness of racism in our country as a black male, what advice do you have for the white leaders um, with the inequity and these issues as they arise at work and leading uh, black employees and members of the team? Well, first of all, we have to understand that people say things like, oh, I'm colorblind, I don't see color. Well, honestly, I don't know if I initially buy that because how can you not? I mean, it's obvious that, that you know, you have two people and of course, a lot of this is historical. I mean, this goes back centuries when you talk about disparities, you talk about racism, you talk about discrimination and, and, then, and even post-traumatic slave syndrome, which is another thing that, that has been posited as a problem that many uh, in the black community have felt for, for years. So HR leaders and, and, and folks like that can, can really um, maybe understand the black community better by, well, first of all, educating yourself and, and, and having those open, difficult conversations. Because honestly, it's like, I know even for myself, it can be very challenging to talk to someone about something you're not comfortable with. Right. And, and, but in the same respect, those conversations are necessary. Be open-minded. 
understand that just because you do something some way or one way, it's not done the same way with everybody. And, and then you also talk about culture. There's, there's obviously cultural differences in for many cases, but remember this too. Just because a person identifies as being black or African-American doesn't mean that they share the same culture as maybe another black and African-American. Right. You know, this whole spectrum. I mean, look at me. I'm, I'm well, you can't see me, the folks in the audience, but you can, Alexia. <laughs> but I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I grew up in the suburbs. I, I had a lot of privilege, honestly, growing up that many of my, my brothers and sisters don't. Doesn't mean that I don't share experience. I was raised a black family, even though I'm adopted. I share a lot of those things but it's experiential. So in the same respect too, we need to treat people as individuals. You can't put everybody in the same category. Right. And so I think too, it's about, once again, sensitivity. It's about understanding. It's about openness and opportunity. Because I'll tell you this for sure. I've met people in my lifetime that are phenomenally just gifted and talented and just, and just need a chance. I mean, I, I met a young man yesterday uh, who is a web developer. He's in his 30s. And is, 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 he never even went to college. He, he got it. He's all self-taught. He has his own web development company. Amazing, you know, talent. And so, so why, you know, why we need to have opportunity for people too, to, to not only be hired, but to rise, you know, within organizations and, and obtain these leadership roles. Because really, if you're going to develop a team, a diverse team, then you have to bring everybody into the fold. And you can't pick and choose. Right. So institutional racism is very real. I become baffled when people are continuing to argue that case. Um, because there was a Harvard Business Review article that was published about institutional racism. And this is by, written by a black consultant. And she said, predominantly when she goes to corporations to help build a diversity inclusion program, the white leaders will say to her, oh, we're lowering the bar because we're bringing in people of color. And as a black woman, she said, they're really pointing to the black people. And so that is mindset. We really need education. And I was happy to see the Harvard Business Review highlight this. And I'm going to put this in the link of the podcast so people can read and understand this is very real. It's not something that we're making up. Let me say this, though. This goes back to the Middle Passage. And we're talking over 400 years uh, and that's why it's called institutional racism. This is something that's ingrained in our culture that that blacks are inferior. And I don't care what anybody says. That's where it comes from. And, and I mean, I, I'll just say it, white supremacy. That's where it comes from, that blacks are inferior or that other, you know, cultures and ethnicities are inferior. Which you and I know isn't true. But it's the mindset. And over time, and it's very, you know, it's interesting too, it's very subtle where people are, are, are you know, saying things and, and, and doing things they don't even realize they're doing. You know, you talk about implicit bias and you talk yeah. about things that, that people do and say, they don't even realize that, you know, you're, you're offending someone without even knowing it. Right. We all do that. Um, I know I've really become self-aware of my own implicit bias that 
there have been times where I've had said things that's offended someone and I had no insight into what I was saying. And it's okay because I think all of us have had that experience. Um, and we're beginning to recognize, okay, we all have bias. What do we do about it? And really the answer is having those open, vulnerable conversations um, and being sincere about it and saying, okay, um, I didn't realize and I'm realizing now and I do care. And I think, you know, Alexia, the, the, the businesses, the organizations um, that are having these conversations, that are doing these kinds of uh, things are, are, are really, they're the ones that are making the progress in this area. Of course, not everybody is, and not everybody, not every organization business can. I mean, sometimes talk about bringing in a, you know, a diversity, equity, inclusion trainer or, or you know, consultant, that costs money. And, and of course, some businesses can't afford that. But there's other ways to, to learn, other ways to, to develop a culture of awareness that, you know, like you said, it doesn't, you don't have to bring in a trainer to have a conversation with your staff and, and have a really, you know, down earth. But that's where the leadership comes in because it does come from the top. And, and of course, if the, if the leaders, including whether it be the, the C-suite or, or middle management, if they're able to be able to open up with their staff and have these conversations, maybe there can, things could happen. I had a, I had a couple of um, experiences, um, actually one in particular with a local uh, you know, nonprofit that is actually tied to a national nonprofit on exactly dealing with race and, and, and you know, and this is right, this is probably in June, uh, right after, um, you know, George Floyd and then that tragic event. And, and we really had a couple of really open conversations with leadership and other staff. It was almost like a, fo it was a focus group, pretty much. And I led it, and it was amazing to see how um, the, the, the staff of color, the, the black staff, were sharing their experience, and, and, and the white staff really just listened. And, and, you know, and it was really, I, I was just, I was guiding it, but I was just really sitting back and saying, this is really pretty interesting because, you know, and of course it was done by Zoom, but I could still see people's faces and I could see people's reactions and, and, and it was just fascinating and also encouraging to see that, that people were being, you know, affected positively through these conversations. So this is openness, but it, like I said, this was an organization that, that was intentional this kind of conversation. That's what you have to do. You have to be intentional. That's good. So how can we tie in the stigma of mental illness for Black people to the work environment? What are some specific con considerations to look at? Well, I think one thing to can look at when it comes to, to you know, Blacks and African-Americans in the workplace and mental health is to First of all, understand that, that in black culture, to show that you have a mental health challenge or concern, is, is that's, that's a, a taboo right there. Because we're told to show strength, we're told to not acknowledge it and, and be open about it, because if we do, we'll see it as being weak. And of course, that's when it's, it's held inside. And that's when sometimes, you know, it'll come out in maladaptive behaviors too. But, but in the workplace, I think, once again, in terms of sensitivity and understanding, just because someone is, is in the workplace and they're, they're seemingly on the outside doing well, 
they may not be performing so great or they may seem distracted. I don't know if you've ever heard the term presenteeism where a person is at work, but they're not fully present because of something that's going on outside of work that's affecting them. Right. So like for me, for example, when I, my dad who passed away four years ago, he was very ill towards the end of his life. And I had to be, I was a primary caregiver, you know, only child, healthcare proxy, power attorney, all this stuff was on me. He was in skilled nursing and I had all this going on while I was at work and it was affecting me adversely. And, and mind you, on the outside, I'm, you know, seemingly happy-go-lucky, but I'm just, I'm dying inside. And also not fully at work all the time. Yeah. And, but I didn't, fully talk about it. I, I, I did talk about it some because I knew to talk about it. But there's a lot of people that don't open up about those things because they feel they can't or, or, or they don't want to let people know for fear of, of just, once again, seeming to be not be able to handle it on, on their own. So I think it's important that those in leadership positions understand that, that just because someone is, is not exhibiting something on the outside doesn't mean they're feeling something. And remember too that, like I said, you know, African American culture is built around the, the belief that you have to show strength, regardless of whatever you're going through. However, that's starting to change. I've seen in many circles uh, that that there's you know people in the black community who are talking more openly about mental health, and then that the word is getting out slowly and, and but surely that that we need to address these things in a way that if we don't, then then we will suffer. Right, so actually talking about it is showing strength. Absolutely. We need to redefine what strength means. Right. So I can relate. My father passed away five years ago, and he had Lewy Body's dementia. And the last month and a half, he was in a facility in dementia care. Um, and so I remember the stressors. And I was not the primary caregiver. I supported my mother, who was. Um, so I was only on the peripheral age. And a lot of us do face that. We have aging parents. We're the primary caretakers. Um, and that just compounds the stress that we feel. And I know that you speak in the community about dementia because that's also part of mental health. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about uh, what do leaders need to be aware of in the workplace to help employees and help them navigate? I recently uh, led a program for the Alzheimer's Association of Western New York, and, and they had actually had a five-week series focusing on dementia in, in the African-American community. And mine was on focusing on caregivers. Wow. So, so one of the things, like you just said, when it comes to, to leaders, and working with staff, and specifically with staff who have a family member living with dementia, but as you know yourself from having witnessed with your mother and probably you too, the stress of caring for someone with dementia is so multidimensional. First of all, you're losing someone right before your eyes. Right. It's slow, it's progressive, it's incurable. So it's, you know, honestly, Alexa, it rips you apart emotionally. I was, you know, when I was taking care of my dad those years, it was the most difficult, most stressful time ever in my life. And I've been through a lot, as you, you've heard, but really it was the most stressful time because in many ways, first of all, I wasn't self-medicating. I wasn't, you know, I was dealing with all this, but I had support. So, but, but a lot of people don't have those things. So I think our, our people in leadership positions, first of all, need to understand just what a person's dealing with when they're having someone, you know, going through these things and, and to be once again to be sensitive to that. 
So in other words, if that person says, listen, um, John, I need to, I need to get a little time to go and see my dad or see my mom. Um, I mean, if at all possible, let them do that. Because I mean, why wouldn't you? And that's, that's once again, that's a human thing to do. That's empathy, right? Now, mind you, like I said, that's not always possible in, in some work situations. But then again, it's just simply being aware that you have a staff or, or an employee that, that is, is, is really feeling some pressure and, and, and being sensitive to that. So, you know, I know when I talked about the caregiver stress, a lot of it revolved around self-care tools, things that people can do to take care of themselves when they're, when they're taking care of a loved one. And, and this amounts to things like just simply having those supports, those people to talk to. Uh, faith. Now, faith, you know, is a big part of many African-American communities. Yeah. And so, you know, relying on one's faith community uh, and also sleep, even, you know, trying to get proper sleep. So trying to encourage people to, to take on those practices, but in the workplace, maybe giving opportunities for people to come together. You know, and interestingly enough, I've, I've been in some workplaces where, you know, and of course, once again, it depends on the size. Not everybody can do this, but I've been in places where, you know, you bring a team together and you have lunch or you have, even if it's brown bag, bring your own. Just a time to just kind of sit and, and just not talk about work, right? Um, and that even something like that can be a stress reliever. So trying to find ways to, to reduce the stress at work so it doesn't bleed into a person's home and life's uh, personal situation. Because you know, the, these days, for many of us, there's no such thing as, as a clear boundary between work and, and home. Right. Right. Many are virtually working and I hear employers asking, how do we talk about these things virtually? We're not there in person. You know, how do we get everybody together? Uh, some are saying, you know, people don't want to talk. We need to break them up in small rooms and even then they don't feel comfortable yet talking. Yeah. Uh, so it's a new frontier virtually than the having that. Now, I will say this though too, this is where once again, I think you can use members of your team to encourage these conversations. You call them champions, right? Because you know, you have the people that, that have buy-in. And if you have enough people that buy into this, then, then they can talk to others and kind of get the culture shifted. But like I said before, it starts at the top, you know, by, by modeling and, and also transparency. I didn't even talk about transparency. Of course, we, we, we've been hearing a lot about that recently or the lack of in some, in some circles. But I think having transparency in organizations with leaders and just being open and vulnerable. I, I recently uh, worked at a place where um, a former uh, executive director, my, my immediate supervisor, uh, had a horrible, tragic loss in his life. His wife died of cancer. And, and I, I mean, it was, it was really difficult to, to witness because, I mean, they had been married for a long time and, you know, had children, but, but he was open about it. And, and he shared about it. And we went through it with him and we supported him. And, and, you know, even though we weren't family by blood, it was almost like the workplace was his family. Wow. And, and, and so, you know, it's the other way around. So remember, too, even our leaders are human. Even our leaders have vulnerability. So when you show that to others, you're actually 
giving them permission to be vulnerable. Right. That's very true. So it does begin with the leadership. And I love what you said, getting buy-in from a peer on the team uh, to lead it, right. to co-lead it. Because a lot of times the team sees that leader as a high above. Um, yeah. Even though we're redefining this with collaborative leadership, it's a newer model. Uh, we still have a lot of top-down management happening. And, and right, exactly. And so if you look at it from the bottom up, I mean, that's where really, that's where you're, you know, whether it be frontline or, or, or you, know, um, you know, lower on the organizational development chart or organizational chart, whatever you want to call it, um, those folks can be instrumental because they are, they do have the ear to ground. They do know the pulse of the organization in many ways. And if you get them involved, then, then certainly they, they can really change the whole course of things. And, and so we really do want to get people as much into this in a way that it empowers them. They feel like they're contributing to the organization. They feel like they are even part of the decision-making. And, and, and mind you, even though the buck stops with the, you know, the executive director or leader CEO, in the end, we all want to feel part of, of what happens with where we work. We all want to feel part of that. Hey, you know what? Um, I, I, I like this idea because I, I, I believe in it. I want to see it work. I want to see it happen. Carl, I wanted to get your thoughts on our current climate as a nation here in the U.S. We seem increasingly polarized uh, with our viewpoints to the effect that we cannot sit down and have a civil conversation finding common ground. And I think we're at a place where it's imperative that we create equity, foster unity, that we're intentional about this. Uh, because as human beings, we do have so much in common. And I remember when uh, presidential debates and elections were civil and you could ask questions and listen to answers and go to the polls and not have such fear. So um, can you tie all of this together with the ending stigma for mental illness, increasing equity, and bringing civil conversations back to light? Uh, that's gonna take some time. Because I think in the last several years, we've seen you know, a huge erosion of, of, of any kind of common dialogue. And that's very unfortunate. And I think what we need is, well, right, we need effective leadership and we need a way to bring us together. And, and mind you, I think a lot, I mean, we, <laughs> you would think that coronavirus would bring people together. I mean, think about 9-11. Um, I remember where I was when it happened. Right. I, remember, so the, I remember vividly where I was at that yep. moment. Yes. I remember, I remember the days afterwards. I remember the country coming together, at least for, for, for a little bit right. <laughs> about, about things. But, but mind you, at that moment, we, we were unified. But it started with leadership. I mean, say what you want about George W. Bush, but he, he, he stepped in. He stepped up to the plate. People respected him. Yes. I remember that. Unified yes. despite political. Yes, because uh, yeah, politics were, were yeah. not even a part of it at that time. He, 
it was it was nonpartisan. It was like we need to come together to 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 to, to deal with what's happened here. Uh, and now I'm not going to go into all of what happened afterwards. But at that, like I said, at that moment, that critical juncture, we came together. And, and you could you can relate it to to the coronavirus even globally. But but you know here in the U.S., I mean honestly, and and gosh, I, I mean so many things that you could say in retrospect. Of course, it's easy to look at hindsight. But if things have been handled differently, we wouldn't be dealing with a lot of problems we have now, I think. If there had been a clear message from the beginning, if, if, it, if there hadn't been divisive around uh, you know, masks and, and things like that, uh, you know, we wouldn't be having these problems. But also, things have been politicized to the place where now people can't even come together over, over you know, simple you know, social uh, practical, uh, protocols. And, and I think when it comes to, to to leadership, what we need to do is is really just have conversations and, and and look at where we're at now and realize that that we have things we're facing that that if we don't take care of them, then then we're going to be leaving this world in a much worse place than we found it. You know, I have I have two daughters, age twenty two and twenty five, and, and the thing I think about many times. Is, is the world that they're inheriting from us. And, and it makes me sad because, you know, they didn't ask for this. And, and, and of course they're looking at this now. I mean, you know, many young people are just feeling very jaded about the whole thing. They're very cynical and, and, and like, you know, like, you know, what have you done <laughs> kind of thing. And I get that because, you know, what have we done? But I think in the end, the leaders need to be the ones who set the tone. They need to be the one who, who, who really say, in, in a way to, to, like I said, unify. That's, that's the best way I can put it. We need someone to unify and send a clear message. Yeah, so we do need leaders during these times to focus on unifying and calming us um, and helping us navigate this, uh, especially the next four weeks are gonna be very stressful. Um, I know some companies are even asking, okay, so we have employees who, uh, are afraid of losing certain rights with the elections, and they're very anxious about that. Uh, how do we help them? Because that's a conversation that's being had. I heard something about Facebook, that there was so much talk and chat around current events that they had to start moderating that uh, to bring more focus back to why we're at work. But also, we need to focus on what is going well, because we do have some things going well, just that we're having this conversation. Um, and let's say we disagreed on certain issues. I mean, we're able to put that aside. We don't even identify what that could be, and we're here for the common cause. We're talking about reducing stigma with mental illness. We're talking about increasing racial equity. Um, and just bringing more common ground for people to focus on in our society. And, and you know what I also want to add, too, is human resiliency. Yes. We haven't talked about that. So, so we're, talk, we're talking about the health and challenges and so forth, but, but, but human beings as, as a whole are very resilient. Yeah. And I've, I truly believe that this is, this is the time that, that is really going to be a test for us, but we'll get through it. Like, like we've gotten through 
everything since the dawn of time, basically every calamity, every, every, and I, I don't believe that, that, you know, we're going to implode in the end. We will find, mind you, I'm not predicting when <laughs> I don't have a, I don't have a timetable on this thing or a deadline, but I believe we'll get through it. And, and hopefully we'll be a better people for it in the end. Right. It's going to take a little time to get there. It's going to be some trouble finding the way, but I think we'll get it. Well, I want to thank you so much for being our guest today on the Agile Empath Podcast. It's an honor to have you and to meet you and have the conversation that we've had. I really appreciate the opportunity, Alexia. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. The website Let's in stigma.org is where you can hear more about Carl's work with ending the mental illness stigma that we have in our society and place of work. Please join us on the Agile Empath Podcast for season three. We're talking about Dr. Caroline Leaf's mindsets. This is empirically researched data where she watched people's brains rewire as a cognitive neuroscientist. And we'll be talking brief episodes about the different mindsets that she teaches on in her book, Think, Learn, Succeed. Hello, my name is Alexia Georgiou. I'm a coach and consultant. And my focus is on resilience and using agile methodologies. Contact me today, Alexia at theresilientpathway.com. That's A-L-E-X-I-A at theresilientpathway.com.